Hello to anybody out there in podcast world. All three of you are very welcome. Uh, We had an audio fail this morning, so I am going to do this message again now uh, in an empty room, just me and the church spiders, and hopefully it will bless you if you're able to stick with it. We are on the 15th and final message of a series called The Rebuilders, where we have looked at the stories of Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, Uh, and looked at the returning exiles as they came back from Babylon to rebuild in Jerusalem. Our key verse that we started with in late June from Amos chapter 9 is, I will bring my people Israel back from exile and they will rebuild. And on Ezra, or in Ezra chapter 6 verse 15, we read that the temple was completed on the third day of the month Edar in the sixth reign, or the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. So Zerubbabel's temple at that stage is finished. He comes up with the first wave of exiles. It's covered in the first half a dozen chapters of Ezra. It's around about 516, 520 BC. Cyrus has sent them back from Babylon and given them permission to rebuild their temple. And he has also provided some resources for them to do it. But whenever the temple is finished, there's an anticlimax. The glory of God does not come and fill it the way it did in the previous temple that Solomon built and in the tabernacle that Moses built. And in the midst of that, a word comes from Haggai the prophet in chapter 2 and verse 9, where he tells the discouraged builders that the glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. So a promise that that the glory of, of God would come to the temple that Zerubbabel built, but we don't see any sign of it in Ezra or in Nehemiah. I remember preaching a sermon back in December 2018. I think it was the 2nd of December. And it was a series on Ephesians and particularly the latter part of Ephesians chapter 2. And we looked at some temples and I'm going to do a quick sort of overview of uh, some temples in the Old Testament. But in that message, which I can't imagine many people remember, I said that a temple is not a building. It is a place where people encounter God, where heaven and earth meet where sacrifices are made by priests, and where there is frequently a prominent tree and a flowing river somewhere in the background. And as I run very quickly through some temple experiences in the Old Testament, I hope you'll you'll understand and you'll get the point that a temple is not a building. It is not a structure. It can be, but it doesn't have to be. A temple is a place where people encounter God. It's a place where humanity comes into contact with the presence of God. It's a place where heaven and earth meet. And one of the things, if you look into these these passages in the Old Testament that I'm going to run through here, or if you go back in the audio archives to December 2018 and listen to that message on Ephesians 2, you will find that there are prominent features in each one of these temple experiences that I'm going to go through. The first one is Eden. Eden itself was a temple. Not a building, not a structure, didn't have a roof. Uh, It wasn't made of cold gray stone. It was a beautiful garden, but it was a temple. 
And in fact, the whole of creation was to be God's temple, his, his dwelling place. And in Eden, we, of course, have some of these features that I mentioned a minute or two ago. We've got a tree, we've got multiple trees, but with one key prominent tree called the tree of life. We've got water and rivers. Eden itself is on a mountain or a hill, according to Ezekiel 28. And God is there. His presence is there. Adam acts as a priest in that garden and he is he is he and eve are both called to to keep to work in the garden and to keep it and one of the things that that i want you to get in each one of these little pictures that i draw for you is the commission that god gives to the people in that temple scenario what he says to adam and eve is be fruitful and increase in number fill the earth and subdue it God, from creation, from Genesis chapter 1, wanted the earth to be filled with images of God. We saw last week how Jesus restores the image of God. God's intention was that the earth would be filled with humanity that bears his image. Moving on from Eden then, when we get to the story of Noah, and particularly the flood and just after the flood, Genesis 8 and 9, we see again there's plenty of water about, that there is a mountain or a hill that the ark comes to rest on. There is a tree uh, implied by the fact that one of the, the, the doves that Noah sent out of the ark came back with a twig or a leaf uh, from an olive tree in its mouth. So we, we have to assume there was an olive tree for him to get it from. And God is there. God's presence meets with Noah in, in Genesis 8, 16. Noah builds an altar and, and, and it becomes a place of worship. But again, you've got those key features, water, mountains, a tree, the presence of God all together. And, and Noah, as well as Adam and Eve, is given a commission, very familiar sounding one in Genesis 9, verse 1, to be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Moving on to Abram, Abram in Genesis chapter 12 meets God. And when you read the, the opening eight or ten verses, you will find, again, in the background, there's a tree mentioned. There's a mountain or a hill or a high place. Abram pitches a tent, a structure comes, comes into play here. He has an altar and he encounters the presence of God. And what God says to him in Genesis 12, at the start of the chapter, famous words, he says to Abram, I will make you into a great nation and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Again, you have this sense of growth, expansion, multiplication given to Abram in this encounter with God, this temple encounter. In Genesis chapter 13, the same thing happens again. Abram builds an altar and he encounters God. And again, when you look in the details, particularly around about verse 18, you will find there's a tree in the background. There is a mountain or a hill. There's a tent structure that Abram pitches. There's an altar and he encounters the presence of God. And once again, listen to the commission, listen to the promise that God gives. It is that I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. That's Genesis 13, verse 16. Expansion, multiplication, offspring like the dust of the earth. Moving on a generation to Isaac in Genesis 26, 
we have round about verses 23 to 25, we have a mountain or a hill. We have a tent or a structure. We have an altar and we have God's presence there. And God says to Isaac, I'm with you. I will bless you and will increase the number of your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. Genesis 26, 24. Increase, multiplication, expansion, the same thing over and over again. Jacob, moving on another generation to Genesis 35. In verse 8, we see a tree. In verse 3, we see a mountain or a hill. He has a tent structure that he refers to as Bethel, the house of God. It's not an actual tent, but the, the, the place that Jacob meets God, he declares to be the house of God, Bethel. There's an altar and the presence of God is there. And Jacob once again receives a commission. And believe it or not, in verse 11 of Genesis 35, that commission is, and God Almighty, be fruitful and increase in number. It's all starting to sound very familiar. There are no buildings that we would call temples anywhere in sight. But each one of these experiences as we move through Genesis, they are temple experiences. They are experiences where people encounter the presence of God. And again, in the background, and we'll see why as we go on, but in the background, there's a tree, there's a river, there's a high place, and there's the meeting of humanity with God's presence. In Exodus 25, Moses is commissioned to build a more permanent, not quite permanent because they could move it around, but a, a more prominent, permanent, real structure known as the tabernacle. And the, the issue is that the Israelites have been fruitful and they have increased in number, but they are in slavery in Egypt and God delivers them via Moses and then he wants to dwell in their midst and calls on Moses to build a tabernacle, a big tent that he can dwell in or that his, his presence can be seen as being localized within that. And if you look carefully at the, the furniture, the decor, the features of this tabernacle, you will see things that we are now familiar with in terms of these temple experiences. You'll see a tree. The tree is called the menorah or the lampstand, and it looks like it's a tree that is on fire, like a burning bush. There is a water uh, source, uh, not quite a river, but there's a, there's a thing called the laver that contained water. Uh, the plan for the tabernacle is given on a hill, a mountain, a high place called Sinai. There's an altar, there are priests, and the presence of God is there. It's where heaven and earth meets. It is the, the, the place where the sky is opened. The veil in the tabernacle was designed to look like the sky, the separation of heaven and earth. And this, this tabernacle was seen as the place where the two come together. And it's really interesting to look at, at the, the run-up to the, the, the building of the tabernacle and the completion of it. God speaks actually seven times. He gives seven different speeches, I believe, on seven days about the, the construction of the tabernacle. And that is very intentionally to, to send us back to the first week 
of creation where God speaks seven times in seven days because he's creating a place where he can dwell. All creation is meant to be the dwelling place of God. And in the tabernacle, as you looked around, you saw lots of these features of these previous temple experiences that were pictures from creation. It was a mini cosmos, a mini creation in which God would dwell. Solomon, a few hundred years later, brought things on and and took the tabernacle uh, from being a tent he created. He built a permanent structure, a glorious temple. You can read about it in the early chapters of 2 Chronicles. But again, whenever you look at the detail, that can be a wee bit hard to read, but when, you, when you're starting to see the patterns and see things that, 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 that you're, you know to look for, you see that, again, the tree is there. There's not just one lampstand. I believe there are 10 lampstands in Second Chronicles chapter 4. And there's tree imagery around the, the walls and the panels. There is water, again, the laver, the sea that contained the water. There's an altar and there are priests. God's presence is there. It is the place where heaven and earth meet. Again, there's a veil and it is embroidered in colors to make it look like the sky. And again, there are seven times that God speaks about the construction of this temple because it, like the tabernacle, is a mini creation, a mini cosmos in which God would dwell. But Solomon knew that God couldn't dwell in a building or be confined to it. And he says when, he, when the temple was dedicated in 2 Chronicles chapter 6 and verse 18, Solomon says, Will God really dwell on earth with humans? And as you read that, you think, Solomon, mate, you've, you've no idea what's actually coming up uh, a few hundred years after you. There's going to be some pretty big things happening where God will dwell on earth with humans. The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this temple that I have built. Solomon knew that God couldn't be confined to a physical structure. And this temple of Solomon is the one that was destroyed at the end of Second Chronicles in chapter 36. As the people were taken from Jerusalem to Babylon, the Babylonians set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. Second Chronicles 36, 19. Because of their idolatry, because of their repeated breaking of the Sabbath and their mistreatment of one another, they went into exile and the glorious temple was, was burned down. And that then is followed by the 70-year exile, and then Zerubbabel is sent back to Jerusalem. And we have the verse that I read at the start in Ezra 6.15, temple was completed. And that problem that Haggai showed us, that, that there, was, there was no glory, and the promise then came through Haggai that the glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. But there's no sign of any glory. And what I, what I hope you can see through what we've done so far is that God wants to dwell with humanity. He wants heaven and earth to meet. He wants a place where his presence is experienced. And it's not about a building or a structure. 
It's interesting to look at what happens with Zerubbabel's temple after this time, the, the time that Ezra and Nehemiah are writing about. That, that begins a period that is referred to by historians as the second temple period. From Ezra and Nehemiah roughly up to the, to the first century is the second temple period of, of Judaistic history. And a few things that happened in the in the in-between period during that, that sem- second temple period is that one of the things was that a guy called Antiochus Epiphanes uh, came to Jerusalem. He was, he was a bad egg and he came to Jerusalem. The madman is, is what he was known as. And in the temple, he put up an altar to Zeus and he compelled the, the Jews, among other things, to sacrifice pig's flesh upon the altar, something that was just abhorrent and unclean to the Jews. And there was a a guy then that rose up to fight against the empire that that had come into play from the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, and he was called Judas Maccabees, also known as Judah the Hammer, a warrior, a leader. And he conquered and drove out the, the Seleucid Empire that had established itself in Jerusalem. And he rededicated the temple and a feast was established that, that is still continued, the Jewish feast of Hanukkah to celebrate the rededication of the temple. Next came Herod the Great. And Herod took Zerubbabel's temple and renovated it in a big way and made it a lot bigger and a lot fancier than it had been before. Herod was in cahoots with Rome and he also was fairly astute politically and he wanted to win the favor of the Jews so he did some renovation work on their temple. But this same Herod that that was referred to as Herod the Great is the is the Herod who killed the baby boys of Bethlehem at the start of the first century. But one boy escaped whenever his father was warned by an angel in a dream to take his wife and his son to Egypt to escape Herod. He obeyed and the child was was saved. And in Luke chapter 2 we read of Joseph and Mary bringing their child to the temple where he would be dedicated. And when they're there, they meet an old man, an obscure old man called Simeon, who does not feature largely on the pages of Scripture, but God blessed this this sort of seemingly unimportant figure of history with with an immense announcement. You see, Simeon had been told by the Holy Spirit that he was going to see the Messiah. And so he spent lots of time at the temple. And we read in, in Luke twenty or sorry, Luke chapter two, verse twenty-seven and twenty-eight, that moved by the Spirit, Simeon went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation and the glory of your people Israel. 
You remember Zerubbabel's temple ultimately was a disappointment because the glory never came to the temple. We read the end of the building of the tabernacle and the glory of God fills it. We read of the building of the temple of Solomon and the glory of God fills it. We read of the building of the temple of Zerubbabel and it's really exciting and they dedicate it and it is an anticlimax because there's no glory. But this old man, Simeon, stands in Luke chapter 2 at the temple and says the glory is back. The glory has returned. Ten or twelve years later, the same boy is found at the temple after his parents have been separated from him for three days. They go back to Jerusalem, they search, and they find him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And about 30 years after that, things really start to heat up in the temple for Jesus. In John chapter 2, he goes into the temple, he finds money changers, he finds people selling animals, and it's, it's become a den of thieves, it's become a house of merchants. And in verse 15 of John 2, we read that he makes a whip out of cords and drove out from the temple courts both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their temples. And during that exchange, he said in verse 19 of John 2, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And they didn't know what he was talking about. They thought he was talking about the temple that Zerubbabel built and Herod enlarged. And they actually threw this at him in, during his, his trial before he was crucified, that he said he was going to tear the temple down and raise it again in three days. But that's not what he said. He said to them, you destroy it. You're going to destroy a temple and I will raise it again in three days. And they didn't know that he was talking about his body. They didn't understand what Jesus is, is showing to us and what the other New Testament writers show to us is that he has come to replace the temple. He is doing away with it. Its time is up. Jesus spends a lot of time at the temple and around the temple teaching, healing. But he has serious issues with what went on inside it and the behavior of the religious leaders. And he even goes so far in Matthew 24 to, to prophesy its coming destruction. Whenever the disciples and Jesus leave the temple and walk away, the disciples came up to him and called his attention to its buildings. And he says to them, do you see all these things? Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And of course, the temple then in AD 70 once again was destroyed by the Romans. Other verses, other teachings of Jesus make clear his intention and his, his viewing of himself as being the one who replaces the temple. In John 1, 14, one of probably the most often quoted verses in this church, the word became flesh 
and tabernacled among us. Tabernacled among us. The tabernacle, the temple. Jesus is the word made flesh and he is replacing the tabernacle and the temple as the place where people meet God. And what John goes on to say in, in, in one fourteen, not only did the word become flesh and tabernacled among us, we have seen his glory. The glory is back. The glory that departed from the temple at the time of the exile and hadn't been seen since has returned in Jesus. In fact, he says in Matthew 12, 6, something greater than the temple is here. <laughs> something greater than the temple is here. You see, a temple is not a building. It is a place where people encounter God, where heaven and earth meet, where sacrifices are made by priests, where there is frequently a prominent tree and a flowing river. In the life of Jesus, there is a prominent tree, the cross. There is the river of the Holy Spirit that he offers living water to the woman and the well. And then in John 7, to everyone at the Feast of Tabernacles and everyone in all of history. And he says, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. There is a high place, a mountain or a hill. It is the hill of the skull, Golgotha, outside Jerusalem, where he was crucified. There is an altar, a place of sacrifice, the cross again. And God is there, God's presence perfectly shown in Jesus. He, the Word, was God, fully God and fully man. He is the place where humanity meets God, where heaven and earth meet at his baptism, the sky was ripped open. And at his death, the temple veil, which was embroidered with colored thread to look like the sky, was ripped open. He is the one in whom heaven and earth come together and meet. He has replaced the temple with himself. He's the place where people meet God. But then he leaves. <laughs> After all of this, all of this talk of temples and all this talk of, of Jesus replacing the temple and tabernacling among us and the disciples are like, yes, this is awesome. The glory's back. The presence, the temple is here. It's Jesus and it's just everything's dandy Oh, And then he leaves. In Acts chapter 1 verse 9, he's taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. What's going on? What now for the presence of God on the earth? Well, Jesus may have left and physically he is not on the earth, but there is still a temple here. We've seen how Zerubbabel, Ezra and Nehemiah saw their efforts end in anticlimax because they couldn't deal with the human heart. And we said that we needed another rebuilder. We need someone who can restore the image of God. That's what we talked about last week, how Jesus' miracles and his mighty deeds showed clearly that he was not just a nice guy who could heal people and did it, but that he was restoring the image of God that had been marred by sin and by idolatry. 
And during his ministry, Jesus declared himself to be the rebuilder that we've been looking for. Particularly one day in a place called Caesarea Philippi, where he's with his disciples and he asks two questions in Matthew 16. He says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And then he says to them, who do you say that I am? And Peter's response, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, brings then a response from Jesus that lets us know what he is building. I will build my church. I will build my church. On this rock, I will build my church. And we saw when we looked at the story of Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, we saw opposition over and over again and building projects attract opposition. And Jesus says, I will build my church. A thing that I've only just learned recently was that at Caesarea Philippi, there was a vast cave, a huge just gaping hole in the rock that led into the darkness. And locally, it was known as the gates of hell. It was seen as the place from which darkness poured forth into the earth and returned back to the underworld, the gates of hell. And Jesus, I can picture him standing with this cave in the distance. And and as he's looking at it and as he's with his disciples, he says to them on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell or the gates of Hades will not overcome it. He looks straight into it. He says, you will not stop my church. And anyone who's done anything in ministry, whether it's church planting or leadership or, or establishing any, any ministry at all, will know that hell unleashes all it's got against you to try to get you to quit. But Jesus is the one building the church, not me or you or anybody else. He is building the church and therefore the church will be built and the gates of hell will not overcome it. And Jesus, like all of the temple experiences we saw in the Old Testament, he has a commission as well for those that he has met with and he has revealed the presence of God to. He says to them in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's the first part of it. And then the last part of it, he says, I am with you always to the very end of the age. So Jesus, very clearly, as he gives them this commission, he puts himself on either side of it. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And then at the end of it, he says, I am with you always. He puts himself around it. This is my commission. This is my church. This is my world. And this is about me. And the the commission itself in between those two sort of brackets on the outside, the commission itself is to go and make disciples of all nations. In other words, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It's exactly the same commission that God gave in Genesis chapter 1 at the very beginning of everything. You see, God doesn't change his mind 
And one of the reasons why, why sometimes when, when I'm preaching, sometimes I'll just sort of pitch my tent in half a dozen verses and dig around. Sometimes we will draw back and we will take a big sort of long view over the whole story of, of Scripture. And we did that last week and we're doing that this week. So that you can see that God has a purpose. He's not just responding to, to what humanity does. Human beings did this, so God has to do that. And then they do this, and he has to do that. No, he, he, he has a plan. He has a purpose for all of creation to be filled with images of God. Eden was never meant to stay as a small garden with Adam and Eve just tinkering about inside it. It was to expand. It was to grow, and it was to increase and fill the earth with images of God. Peter never forgot this encounter with Jesus. In fact, he, when you read Peter's letters, as, as you read the Gospels and then read his letters, you can see how profoundly his time with Jesus affected him and shaped his thinking. And even decades later, as he writes himself, he's so heavily, heavily influenced by the different experiences he has with Jesus. And whenever Peter tells Jesus, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God, Jesus gives him a nickname, calls him Rocky. And he says to Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. On this rock. And Peter never forgot that image of a rock and the church being built. And when he wrote his letter, his first letter in chapter 2 and verse 5, he writes and he says, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Like living stones. And what I picture on a Sunday morning as, as people walk across the car park, past the windows and come in here, I see stones, boulders. It's not a very flattering picture, but... I'm, I'm sure you get it. I see, I see stones rolling across the car park and coming in. And as they come in, King Jesus takes them and he, he builds them up on top of each other. And he has a house. He has a dwelling place. A spiritual house made of living stones, made of us. And on our own, we're just a single stone, a living stone. And on our own, we have to have a devotional life. And we have to have a secret place of prayer and of nourishing our spirits in the word of God. But when we come together, something incredible happens. As Jesus, the master builder, puts together a temple. And the Holy Spirit dwells within it. Awesome stuff happens when we're together. That's why Sunday morning is special and it is important because it's a place more than any other where a temple is built and the presence of the Spirit of God is there. That's why praying together is so important. And if your experience is anything like mine, you will probably find that your best prayers of the week are prayed on a Tuesday night in the prayer meeting because you're in the temple. The living stones are there. The king has put them in place and the Holy Spirit is within. 
That's why listening to a worship song in the car might be encouraging, but it's not like worshiping with God's people in the temple made with living stones. And it doesn't have to be in a building. Whenever we gather together, it could be it could be in a building, it could be in a car park, it could be in Gosford or in a barbecue, it could be lots of different places. But when we're together, the Spirit of God is here in a special way. And Paul also draws on this imagery of, of buildings at the end of Ephesians chapter 2. He tells us that we are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. According to Wikipedia, the cornerstone is the first stone set in the construction of a masonry foundation. All other stones will be set in reference to this stone, thus determining the position of the entire structure. He is the cornerstone. He is the point of reference that all other stones line up with. And in case you think a cornerstone is a small thing, a cornerstone has been found by archaeologists at the Jerusalem temple and it is 12 meters long. That's a big stone. The question is, does God have a temple on this earth? Paul goes on to say that in Jesus, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in Jesus, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Does God have a temple on this earth? Yes, he does. It's us. It's us. We are the place where people can encounter the restorative presence of God. And we can only do it together. Paul says in Ephesians 2.22, in Jesus, you two are being built together. And in Ephesians 2.21, in Jesus, the whole building is joined together. Unity is so important. Not necessarily agreement on 100% of the fine details, but unity is so important. If there's going to be a temple, if there's going to be a place where the Holy Spirit dwells, if there's going to be a place where the marred, broken images of God can meet King Jesus and be restored once again, there has to be a united church. God does not dwell in a structure made by human beings. Solomon knew that. God can only dwell in a structure made of human beings. We are the place where his presence dwells on the earth. Some people read the, the latter chapters of Ezekiel and other places in the scripture and then they say that a physical temple has to be built in Jerusalem in the end times. And I would beg to differ. The temple, Jesus replaced the temple. Jesus has made his church to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. And when we read Revelation, we read of a new city, a new Jerusalem. And there doesn't even need to be a temple in it because the whole of creation is God's temple. 
I can't rebuild anything. Jesus does it. My responsibility is to love him and to be filled with the Spirit and to love others. But I can't rebuild a human life. Only he can do it. But in order to do it, his presence needs to be here by the power of his Spirit among the living stones. And not only are we corporately a temple, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.19 that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit individually. So wherever you go, the Holy Spirit goes. You're a mini temple on this earth. When you walk into your classroom tomorrow or your ward or your office, you're a mini temple carrying the presence of the Spirit of God to those around us. And the call as we finish this series, the call is still to expansion. Isaiah wrote to the, to the exiles or, or wrote ahead for the exiles in chapter 54, verses 2 and 3. And listen to the language he uses. It's the language of tents and tabernacles. He says, enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch your tent curtains wide. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. For you will spread out to the right and to the left. Your descendants will dispossess nations and settle in their desolate cities. Expansion. God wants to expand. Jesus wants his church to expand. That does not necessarily mean that, that we engage in expensive building projects that put us under extreme financial pressure. What that means is the influence of the church. He wants to expand it. If that means a bigger building, so be it, but it may mean lots of other things. It means we go out around the tent of his presence and we pull up the stakes and we lengthen the cords and we move the whole thing out. We make it bigger. An increased capacity to bring the presence of God into our communities. Expansion is still the call. I will bring my people Israel back from exile and they will rebuild. Isaiah 58 is a message or is a passage that I quoted in the first message of this series. And particularly verse 12 and particularly Eugene Peterson's rendition of it in the, in the Message Bible. He says, you'll use the old rubble of past lives to build anew. You'll rebuild the foundations from out of your past. You'll be known as those who can fix anything. Restore old ruins, rebuild and renovate Make the community livable again. That is the commission of the church. We are to restore. We are to rebuild. We are to renovate. Our communities around us are dead because of sin and idolatry and abuse and neglect and addiction and so many different things. We need to make the community livable again. We need to be the temple of the living God. We need to be the living stones that, that Jesus puts together and in which his presence by the Spirit dwells. 
because those who have come back from exile will be rebuilders. And our calling card that we will leave, the mark that we will leave on the communities around us should be that we rebuild. Amen.